I believe that Hawaii in particular and the Pacific region ostensibly have the power to bring about world peace. Hawaii's unique culture is a beacon for world peace, a story that needs to be told. Va in Samoan is the space between two people or someone and the environment. The relation is you have to attend the space because if you don't attend the space, you lose connection within. Hawaii has this power, but what plays into that power for me is this geography, that people get called here because it's a healing place. I think for me, the word is forsake. You really have to forsake your individuality and contribute to a larger whole. Our stories, our music, they're not just expressions, they're pathways to healing. We're in such critical need of healing that it's so much easier to click off rather than to dive in. And I think the more and more that we can engage people to not be afraid to dive in, it is okay for us to not get along for a moment if what it means is a lifetime of us celebrating each other. Greater Good Radio, Connect, Learn, Heal, and Grow is brought to you by Brain Gain Hawaii, a boutique executive recruiting, career development, and coaching firm. Learn more at BrainGainHI.com. Today's guest is Dr. Aaron Salah from Gravitas Pacifica. Thank you. Good morning. For coming. Yeah. Thanks for having me. When somebody asks you, who are you? How are you explaining that? That's funny because when people ask me what I do, I actually don't know how to answer the question straight away. And part of it is because I wear a lot of different hats, right? So I'm an academic on one hand. I'm director of a Title III federal funding grant at the University of Hawaii, West Oahu. And then I'm a strategy and cultural consultant with creative firms. I think at the end, I'm a creative. And I delve into and thrive in storytelling and bringing story to the mainstream. And it's really that drives the work that I do. And so it's difficult to say, you know, I'm a business person or I'm an economist or, you know, I think what I am is a storyteller. What I am is a creative. How about a story then to describe who is Dr. Aaron Salah? Sure. I was born to a Hawaiian Chinese Portuguese mother and a Samoan father. In my youth, we lived in American Samoa. My paternal grandfather is a faifeau, a minister, founder of an incredibly beautiful church in Tafuna. And my father, he was a flight attendant for American Airlines, turned airline founder, and a business partner founded South Pacific Island Airways. He's now a judge on the high court of American Samoa. My mother was a dancer. She danced for Auntie Bella Richards in Kailua. And that took her into international marketplace at the age of 12. And she danced for many years, married my father. They moved to Samoa. She came back and was a mid-level executive at Outrigger Activities when Charo and Society of Seven were still performing. So I really am this child of the tourism industry. So I spent my youth in American Samoa and became an adult in Hawaii. Got into Kamehameha, went to Kamehameha, and then stayed home for college. And sort of the rest is history. How does that filter into the different kind of pieces of your vocation, as well yeah. as you didn't mention your music, which, yeah. you know, our mutual friend, John Yamasato, I right. mentioned him, and uh, you know, Aaron Salah, and he's like, right, he's a super good pianist. Oh, that's very right. kind You didn't even of mention him. that, right? So Yeah, that's kind of him. When we were in Samoa, I studied piano at Terry's Piano Studio in Leone, which is the village just adjacent to ours. And I think music is in my DNA 
because as a child, we would have these evening services. So in Samoa, every evening there's a period of time called Sa, and the family communes together to give thanks to God for the day. And so it's an extended family. You know, there's 30, 40 of us living on the same compound. And this choir would just emerge out of my family. And I used to just be in awe. Like for me, that was like, there must be a God. There must be this universal convening power that brings people together to make this sound. And so that sound, I hear it right now as we're talking, that sound has informed really my whole life as a musician and as a creative. Came to Kamehameha, Kamehameha is a performing arts school. I studied piano through my undergraduate degree. And when I was young, I think we were visiting grandma in Kailua, my maternal grandparents, one summer, and we had gone to a luau, grandma and grandpa and I. When we came home, I remember it's just raining just a little bit, and Grandma went to the piano in our living room. I thought that piano was mine because only I played it. And so she went to the piano. I thought she was going to call me over to the piano. She started playing. My jaw was on the ground. And she didn't play with any music. I had only known how to play with music on the music stand. And she started playing. So I ran over to the piano and sat next to her. The song that she was playing was Kalamaula. And so she would start to teach me how to play Hawaiian style piano. As long as I maintained, you know, you got to study Mozart and you have to do your Beethoven practices and your Chopin etudes and all of that. But I'll show you how to play a vamp after you practice. And so that continued really all the way through her passing. And I don't know, sensitivity led me to people like Mahi Beamer, Buddy Nalwai, you know, Auntie Leila, Hohu Kiaha, just these incredible pianists in Hawaii and in our town who had this ability and capacity to improvise and also to read music, right? So that really sort of drove where I went as a musician. I'll tell you just one more thing is that in high school at Kamehameha, the trajectory of my life really was to be an opera singer, to be an opera conductor. I fell in love with classical music at Kamehameha, fell in love with voices like Maria Callas and Luciano Pavarotti and Mario del Monaco and Giuseppe Di Stefano and these incredible voices that sang on operatic stages. Les Balos took me as a voice student, and then he took me to his teacher, Neva Rego, who taught here in Kemuki. And Neva had spent 30 years in Italy studying and then came home to take care of an ailing father and opened a voice studio. And I stayed with her through her passing as well. And so I had, you know, this trajectory toward conducting an opera singing. And I was in New York in the late 90s, studying with a husband and wife opera team, Sharon and Arturo Spinetti, and then got on a flight to come home and thought, okay, I'm going to start to wrap things up here, pack and move. And I think I realized on that flight that I wanted to live here, that I wanted to base my life here, that Hawaii and the Pacific region was a really important part of my DNA. And so reinvented or redirected who I was going to become because you couldn't have a, a career in classical music and live here in the 90s. It's difficult today. And so came home and went back to school, got a master's and PhD in ethnomusicology, and which really is, you know, the study of humans making music. 
And that has informed really how I look at the work that I do now. Could you like bust a tune, kind? Sure. Okay, let's let's see. Can I, I use this? Yeah, grab it right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little early, but okay. Come sei bella più bella stasera Mario. Splende un sorriso di stella negli occhi tuoi blu. Anche se avverso il destino domani sarà. Oggi ti sono vicino perché sospirar. Non pensar. Parlami d'amore, Mario. Tutta la mia vita sei tu. Gli occhi tuoi belli brillano, fiamme di sogno scintillano. Dimmi che illusione non è, dimmi che sei tutta per me. Qui sul tuo cuore non soffro più. Parlami d'amore, parlami d'amore, parlami d'amore, Mario. Ah, <laughs> uh, no warm up, nothing, huh? Oh, wow. Thank you for Thank that. you for, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. So you can just bust a tune anytime, anywhere, whatever. <laughs> I don't, I. Sure. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as good as many. Why did you choose that song? That's one of the songs that Uncle Mahi taught me. So, you know, before I realized that Andrew's restaurant in Ward Center back in the day was a piano bar, a high school friend of mine and I walked into Andrew's one night where Uncle Mahi was playing piano bar. In the room that night where Robert Casimiro was there, Marlene Sai was there. Gosh, by the end of the evening, we heard Van Diamond sing... I think Auntie Nina Kelly Hamana came in that evening too. And that was like the, like, wow. You know, and they all just flocked. Like, it was like Uncle Mahi had this magnet around him that just brought people together. And what brought people to him was music. And so I just became a Mahi Beamer groupie. He was the subject of my PhD dissertation. Over the years, he taught me songs. This was one of the songs that Uncle Mahi taught me. I mean, he just knew all the songs. He would sing Stevie Wonder, followed by you know, Puccini, followed by a Hawaiian Standard, you know, Kavena Pukui and Maddie Lai. It was just fascinating, the repertoire that he had inside his head at the, you know, that he could call upon at any moment. So, yeah, Parlami Damore Mariu comes from a movie, I think 1949 movie, and Uncle Mahi taught me the song. Wow. Yeah. Tell me, maybe, if you can... Your favorite memory with your Uncle Mahi? Uncle Mahi lived out at Cavella Bay on the North Shore and then moved to Punalu'u. And in Punalu'u, he stayed in one of the side homes on the property. And I remember us going to visit him once, and he had this way of eating. He had to eat across the plate from like left to right or right to left. It, it just had to be eaten in a certain way. And then he would move his food. He would eat, and then he would turn the plate and move his food and eat and turn the plate and move his food. And it was like there was this specific process by which he ate. 
And so I just remember watching him. We were at Punolu'u one night. I think we were just eating corned beef and onions and rice or something like that. And sitting there watching him. And he noticed me watching him eat. And he turned to me and he said, you know, you see how messy your plate and how clean my, <laughs> my plate? You should learn how to eat. It wasn't really a critique. It was, you know, just a, us being together real in the moment. You know, it's just one of many, many memories that I have with him. How about a memory or a story that moves you the most? When I started my PhD work, I knew that I wanted to honor him. I knew that I wanted to write about him. And I knew that I wanted to tell his story in as far as and in so much as he would allow me to tell it. And I think what was really enlightening to me was how absolutely genuine Uncle Mahi was, regardless of who was in his company or where he was. He never lost this childhood curiosity about the world, and it made him such a special human being. In Kailua, at Auntie Gay Beamer's home, is Helen Deshay Beamer's piano. And so we would meet there quite often. And just in the middle of conversation, he would stand up and walk to the piano and you know, play something that he hadn't played in decades, but something moved him in the moment and he remembered words or he remembered a melody and he would just replay all of these songs he and Don Ho wrote when they were at school together or he and someone else, you know, and just all these little ditties that helped him to remember moments. The songs were these opportunities to remember relationships and these songs were these opportunities to remember situations or people in particular places and i don't think that i can articulate one of these moments but just this vast relationship over time with uncle mahi and then this window into really his soul and then his usage of these pieces i mean he wrote a little telephone song he and his best friend and first cousin Keola Beamer. He and Uncle Keola were very, very close, insatiably, you know, inseparably close. And they would just, you know, come up with these little ditties. Oh, this is my phone number. This is your phone number. You know, that's it. All done, you know. <laughs> but it's just fascinating to think about the power of music and the way he used music to bring joy and peace to the world. You have music that flows through you. You have art that flows through you. You have academics. Mm -hmm. How do these connect? How would you describe yeah. that? I am an academic because I wanted knowledge to inform what I did as a creative. And so I don't consider myself an academic for the academy's sake. I really consider myself an academic for the artist's sake. And I believe that Hawaii in particular and the Pacific region ostensibly have the power to bring about world peace. And so in order for that to happen, we need to find ways of telling the stories, not just of ourselves as Native Hawaiians, but of this particular place as a local, incredible culture and find ways for those stories to come to the mainstream. And for me, that's the power of tourism. Because tourism necessarily engages with the other. And 
if we can find these connection points to remind us all that we come from the same humanity, then we're that much closer to finding peace with each other. And so, you know, as you can imagine, my head is this and this and this and this. It's like shiny thing, shiny thing. You know, my sort of internal world functions this way. But at the end of the day, my ultimate goal is to find ways to bring our stories to the mainstream. And my creative outlet naturally leads toward, you know, working with entities like Disney, like Cirque du Soleil. It's really the stage production, songwriting, and those kinds. That's my creative path. For me, this starts to laser focus in. And this brings all of these voices in my head to that one point. And for me, that's the goal, is to find ways of uniquely telling Hawaii's story in order to bring about world peace. What are some examples of that? A story that is absolutely unique in the world. And by the story of Hawaii, what I really mean is that this genealogy of a Native people and how that worldview informed an inclusion of diversity that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And so, for instance, I'll tell specific stories to myself, but when the plantations started, the first immigrants they brought in were single Chinese men. And they thought, the single Chinese men going to do the work. You know, they're going to come and they're going to do the work. Those single Chinese men came, and besides making babies with Native Hawaiian women, <laughs> they also got into mischief, right? And so then the next group of immigrants that come in were Portuguese families from the Madeira, from Azores, right? And those Portuguese families, salt of the earth families, right? Like just close to the earth. My Chinese blood comes from two brothers. One brother, as I understand the story, one brother Americanized or, you know, Westernized his name to Victor. And so we're Victors from Kona, but we don't have, you know, sort of German, European blood. My Portuguese blood comes from Faustina Cabral, who brought her children to Hawaii from Portugal and put them up in the orphanage in the back of Kalihi Valley. And then went back sometime later and said, oh my gosh, nobody wanted you to get in the car, let's go home. <laughs> she had, you know, she was a single parent and had to go and work in the plantation. She couldn't care for her children. Then she went back and got them and took them home. It made for a really interesting household because my grandfather, pure Portuguese, second generation, I guess full, first full generation grown, you know, in Hawaii, eighth grade education, worked really hard to support his family, four children and, and his wife, my grandmother. But he was a very conservative, very private gentleman. Our house was as full sometimes as it was with children. My father was very private. My grandmother, on the other hand, is a Ka'avaloa from Puna. And several generations ago, one branch of the Ka'avaloa family moved to Waianae, Hakimo Road on Oahu. And my grandmother was one, one part of that lineage, that branch of the family. And just joy, pure joy, you know. And she and her sister, my Auntie Didi, they were just, again, like inseparably close, you know, all of those things. Auntie Didi married an elder. 
So that house was full of people all the time, parties, music, and food. And my grandmother in our house, very conservative, very quiet, right? But two branches really from the same root. And so, you know, back to this original question that you asked, for me, it's really about the power of Hawaii to engage and celebrate color consciousness rather than color blindness. And it really is a lot of work that we get along with each other the way we do. And to a certain extent, I think even that's fleeting these days. And so we really have to get back in and dig in and figure this out with each other. But it is this power that Hawaii has to necessarily convene diversity and provide safe space for diversity to flourish that I think is the unique power that Hawaii brings to the world. Is this what you share typically in your professional realm with your business? Perhaps I'm more articulate about it in a situation like this with you. But the work that we do at Gravitas really is about strategy and cultural consulting and looking at things from a Pacific lens, from a Hawaiian lens, and saying, okay, on one hand, how would our ancestors have dealt with situations like this? How would our ancestors strategize to the success of this particular project or this particular business or this stage production or creative process that we're working on? The Title III that I direct at UH Westall is really interesting. It's a five-year project, but it's three-pronged. So first pillar is Native Hawaiian Pacific Island knowledge and worldview. I'm less interested in the subject area of Pacific Island studies and Hawaiian studies, and more interested in the entire campus. If a faculty member is one-tenth of one percent of a lesson plan is looking at something Hawaiian or something Pacific, we want that, you know, because we want to look at how the Pacific world informs work that scientists do, that biologists do, that historians do, that mathematicians do, right? The second pillar is innovative technologies. So it's really engaging faculty and students to say, okay, rather than a traditional assessment, you know, multiple choice essay kind of assessment, could you use TikTok as a platform for assessing knowledge and then using that vehicle to tell story? Then the third pillar is solutions-oriented futures. So for me, it's really looking at what does Hawaii look like and what does the Pacific region look like in 50 years and 100 radically about the future, right? How do we really see ourselves? Where is the waterline on Oahu in 100 years? And how do we come to understand that today so that we can chart how we curb that or how we, we support it, you know, those kinds of things, right? So this Hawaiian Pacific knowledge worldview together with innovative technologies is meant really to look at potential futures for Hawaii, for the Pacific region, for the world, and then start to effect change as necessary for living into the world that we want for our children, for our children's children, for our children's children's children. And so all of that comes together for me because we are a strategy. I'm a futures thinker. And so it's really about bringing stories of today and stories of yesterday together with how we project stories for the future and then bringing that light really to the world. Do you have any examples of where that had a successful impact? Not yet, only because we've just started this work. What we're trying to do is more integrally engage with 
entities from, you know, Hawaii and the Pacific region, right? So we're preparing now for Hawaii's hosting of the Festival of Pacific Arts and Culture. It's in June of 2024. This festival has started in 1972 in Fiji and has traveled every four years, Melanesia, Micronesia, Polynesia. This is the first time Hawaii is hosting. Hawaii has been attending this festival since 1976. We have about 3,500 delegates from the Pacific region coming and probably upwards of 100,000 some visitors, you know, academics, tourists, and otherwise coming to participate in some form in the festival. And so what I'm looking toward is how we properly engage in preparation for the festival when you have, you know, 3,000 some delegates from 28 Pacific countries at one time in one place. And then on the other, how we plan for the future beyond the festival. So it's not an anomaly. The festival has to create or has to be the launching point for a new way of looking at the Pacific region, how we see ourselves, how the world sees us, how we see the world, and then designing strategy beyond the festival. The goal for me is to assure that we have rekindled as a Native Hawaiian community, as a local Hawaii community, we have established and or rekindled relationship with Pacific Islanders because we're not very good Pacific Islanders. You know, and so really assuring that what we've necessarily done is convene so that we understand the challenges that are being faced by our Pacific family. What ancient practices are you using in a modern-day kind of format? If you follow how a lo'ikalo works, you're taking water from a stream, and it goes into a series of taro ponds. Each variety of taro grows in a particular way with a particular temperature of water at a particular time of the year. So I have to engineer how the water moves through these ponds, maintaining its temperature, making sure that I plant it and harvest it at particular times of year, and then assuring that water then returns back to the stream more enriched than it was when I took it from the stream. So perhaps the most important premise is that I have to take it from the stream, but then I have to give it back to the stream. And the second thing is, what I've taken from the stream, I have to return in better condition. What's interesting about how we have built dams or po'owai in Olalo is that I can control the amount of water that comes into the irrigation channel by the amount of pohaku that I use to build height on the dam. If I need more water into the dam, then the dam has to be built higher. Right, and the more water gets channeled into the Hawaii. If I don't need so much water, I can remove some of those pohaku so that the water can flow into the stream. If the mountain has decided, you know, or the rains have decided to fall, then that dam has to be able to naturally collapse so that the water can continue to flow in the stream and it doesn't ruin the work of the irrigation channel. So, in that sense, that it's me working in step with the natural environment then, rather than trying to control without end, right? So the environment has control, and I work with the environment to maneuver. I remember my voice teacher once saying to me, if you just look at the music, the music already is telling you what it wants to sound like. You're just the vehicle for this music. And I think 
this informs the way that I look at this work. I'm just a vehicle. So I do my very, very best to not be so too self-important in the work. So if I take the planting of Kahlo as an analogy and look at the tourist industry, that stream is a marketing target market. And so if I want more tourists in the destination, then I do the work that it takes to you know, properly market or do more ad buys or that then encourage people to come into market. The thing is that in the destination, I also have to do the work in the destination to assure that like Kahlo have to be planted at particular times and particular seasons with particular water temperature, et cetera. I also have to do this work here so that when they're coming, I still control the flow of water through the channel. Right? So I have to control the flow of tourism into the channel. right? And then my goal is that these visitors then go back to the stream more enriched mentally, perhaps physically, internally, than when they came into the channel. I have to do that work. right? And so again, if my goal is world peace, then something has to affect them here in order for them to return enriched, empowered, engaged, because they have to then take that back to wherever they've come from. So all of this work in all of these different, you know, you have water flowing, all these different kalo that are being planted and harvested at a particular time. There's so much work to be done in the destination and there's so much work to be done at the kahawai, at the po'owai, to assure that what you're bringing in is what you want to bring in. And what you're bringing in is people who are already primed for learning, enlightenment, journey, you know, so that by the time they come to Hawaii, there's something has been done internally it's never really the arrival back at the Kahawai. It's this journey that makes everything worth while. So if I've done the work at the Kahawai, at the Po'owai, that the Pohaku are, are placed properly, then the water that I'm bringing in is already primed to work with me in my series of lo'i ponds. We're already ready to do this work. It's hard work. It's really hard work. And so... You know, we use definitely leisure, you know, leisure market, you know, we use these kinds of terms, but tourism is hard work. Tourism is hard work if the goal of what we are trying to do is change the way people think about the world. And I think, you know, I cry because we're in such need of healing. We're in such critical need of healing that it's so much easier to click off rather than to dive in. And I think the more and more that we can engage people to not be afraid to dive in, it is okay for us to not get along for a moment if what it means is a lifetime of us celebrating each other. We, we're so afraid of taking this first step that I think we lose sight of the ho'i back to the kahawai. We forsake the power of all of this work and what it will do for us personally, for our community, for humanity. You know, we stop somewhere. And I think we need to get over that or get into that work, maybe I should say.
when you talk about diving in, mm-hmm. right, and it's needed to do it, what would that look like to you? In many ways, I'm really no different than I think many of us seeking, you know, the innocence of our own nostalgia and our own childhoods. And as I hear my family singing in six and eight parts, for me, that was the frequency of the world in tune with itself. And what drove me then to be really inclined toward the power of a choir or the power of an orchestra is that you had individuals with their own individual life stories who would forsake that individuality for the power of the collective. That is a choir. That is an orchestra. And so if we then look at an opportunity to engage individuals who come with their own individuals, somebody who may be really quite affluent, another might be come from well below the poverty line, And if we can get them to, again, I think for me, the word is forsake. You really have to forsake your individuality and contribute to a larger whole. Then there is opportunity for growth and empathy in that moment. And so that's high philosophy. It's really looking at acceptance and celebration and how we do this work. And maybe part of my answer to you directly is, I don't know yet. I'm not sure how it all comes. I just know it does. And I think part of the work is us doing the work together, right? That we have to commit to doing the work. I don't think we have understood or acknowledged that we ourselves have so much work to do. Tourism, for instance, is a really easy scapegoat because people come and go. And so we can turn it around and say, well, you know, you don't really care because you get up and leave anyway. And thank God you leave. Because it's easier to place blame on this thing that we don't understand, we haven't really done the work in, than to sit across the table like this and say that we have work to do, that my Chinese ancestry really doesn't like my Hawaiian ancestry. And my Hawaiian ancestry is absolutely resentful of all these Portuguese that came in. And I think what we haven't done is design and establish safe space, again, for us to get into that deep, hard conversation in order for us to then turn to an industry like tourism and say, okay, we're not ready for you. You guys can't come. You know, we'll figure it out. We'll live off the land again or those kinds of things, right? Or all the things that our ancestors were doing the work of doing. So let us do this work and then we'll come back and say, okay, we're good. You good? I'm good. And then, you know, then we can put the Pohaku up on the Po'owai and start to bring people in. In 2018, right, I have four kids and all of them going private school, so it's expensive. Mm-hmm. My father has cancer, mm-hmm. right, at the time, and we're caregiving for him, flying back and forth to the mainland, doing all these things. My wife gets really sick, mm-hmm. cannot stay awake for more than two hours, but she's the type that if she leaves a position, you need three people to replace her. Yeah. So... Now I'm freaking out, like, what is going on? I do something, but I don't know what to do. Then New Year's Day comes around. I'm cooking noodles like a good Chinese boy. And i talking to my auntie with no shirt. I swish the water to try to get one noodle off the side. I miss, and all the boiling water goes on my stomach. Mm. And I, I rub it, and my skin comes off. So now I have second-degree burns that I have to heal up. That takes about six weeks or so. Then I got sick for two months. 
And then after that, I decide, you know what, I'm going to buy a one-wheel motorized skateboard to practice my foiling on land. And then I fall onto my tailbone and I burst fracture my vertebrae. So I broke my back. So now I'm more or less like immobile. I cannot move. Yeah. I cannot go bathroom. I spend time healing up. So you're taking from like probably like November of 18 to almost July of 19, immobile, like out of it kind, right? I go through this whole spiritual, yeah. physical, emotional, mental thing. I sought out every every single healer, therapist, whatever it may be, right? And started to make good progress. And then I started to start learning things on my own because it's not going fast enough, right? I've got to heal, but yeah. this pain's too much. Yeah. And then I started to get flashbacks of some pretty intense childhood trauma I had no idea about. Yeah. And that's taking me to today where it affects and it moves through my work. Like most of that type of thing now becomes me search, yeah. right? I want to heal the world because I want to heal me. Yeah. I want to work with this person because I want to work with me. Yeah. And this project now, is a very good projection Absolutely. of that. So one thing as I come to this is interesting because you had mentioned that you the music comes out and you're just a channel more or less for it. That's kind of why I don't talk a lot typically in a lot of this because I talk a lot normally. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to gauge where this channel is moving from and move this through. Mm-hmm. This brings us to a very interesting point because I've been looking at a healing space in groups for quite a while now and trying to more or less figure it out of how to properly deliver that so that it can be done versus one-on-one but at scale because we get hurt emotionally and mentally in groups we heal in groups Mm -hmm. same thing as the choir you have a group that use the energy and you have an individual process Mm -hmm. so that brought me to thinking about the pu'uhonoa right the street right down the street from me is Mm pu'uhonoa Where in my understanding is in the history that you break a kapu, right? Which is the law where you break it, you're going to get killed. Mm-hmm. If you can make it to the Pu'uhonua, which is city of refuge, and they let you in, you go in, you basically rehab, you go to work and you're not just cruising, you rehab, you come back into society mm-hmm. and society re-embraces you, right? Mm-hmm. Fast forward a bit, where's our Pu'uhonua? You know what I mean? Where is the place for us to go mm-hmm. and to be in community that we can heal mm-hmm. and be healed? So I think as we come to that now, I think we're in the mix of this. I'm looking at what you're talking about, which is a lot of externally facing large-scale pieces that are really originating from a very tender inner place of healing. Absolutely brilliant. First of all, thank you for sharing. That. I think I especially love me search because I think we're doing that, you know? Gosh, it was fascinating. You know, I'm a thinker. Words are really important to me. And so I search for the right word and I allow the silence if I can't find the right word. But what I find fascinating is a story like that. I don't have, my father wasn't ready to be a father or a partner when we were around. And he's a very Samoan very Samoan man and Matai, Ali'i, you know, rather high ranking. And so my mother is not Samoan. And it would have been very difficult for her to have lived in that environment, not understanding the Fasamoa. And all that said, you know, I have lived a rather privileged life, not affluent, but certainly privileged. And by privilege, I mean, again, I come from a high-ranking 
Samoan Matai's household. My grandfather was a minister. You have a minister and you've taken care of church and, and state within one family. You know, you have what you need. My mother, she basically was a single mom taking care of an entire household. Her parents, you know, us and then whoever had to come who needed space to stay, you know, she took care of all of us. Even with all of that, I never wanted for anything. Everything, you know, I would throw a fit and it would materialize, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't have the necessarily painful childhood except that I don't know what a mother and father raising their children together looks like in my own experience, except that now Nani and I are raising our children together. We've found a way to stay in step with each other and through our entire relationship. And so, you know, I think what's fascinating to me is the power of these individual stories to tell a collective saga of humanity. That you and I would be sitting at this table together right now in this particular space is fascinating to me. And the fact that I would walk in here, you know, you have the flower elixirs and the crystals. And I mean, this is like... We're kindred spirits, you know, because of this, you know, and really the need for self-healing. And I think you said it, you know, it wasn't moving fast enough, so you have to go look for it yourself. I think for me, that's, you know, notwithstanding that I never went through any emotional trauma, yes, but physical trauma that you have shared. I think that me search, in order to fully align with self in the quantum you know, it's such a powerful thing for me that I can just sit and close my eyes. Again, I'm going to feel really safe with you and engage. It's a powerful thing. I connect that power, not just to self, but to Hawaii. And I connect that power to the Pacific. And I believe really because of that, Hawaii has this power. We have this power to do this with each other. But what plays into that power for me is this geography that people get called here because it's a healing place. And we have this responsibility to ourselves, to each other, and to this place to not lose sight of what that is. How do we approach that coming from a local perspective and a local geography, looking more toward ourselves initially and then the ones that we hold closest to us and so on? It is looking toward ourselves, but I think it's also looking at each other and perhaps looking with each other because we're all each other. I mean, I think, you know, by and large, if you're Hawaiian, you're also Chinese. And how much about your Chinese DNA do you know? And chances are, you know, perhaps you're Portuguese. Well, certainly in my case, right? How much about your Portuguese DNA do you know? And so I think the challenge is that we conflate who we are as native Hawaiian community and then local community. And everything local gets like this. But the thing that makes this collective is all these individual ethnicities, Filipino, Korean, Japanese, etc., right? But the power of that collective is really the power of these individuals coming together to be collective. And I think we've forgotten that we get along. I think we've forgotten that we have found the secret of the world. <laughs> so 
it's in that really that I think we need to do this me search work so that we can better understand the doing of things like education, tourism, you know, business, because that's what we bring to the world. What have you found in your own journey has been the most helpful for your me search and healing? I am terribly fearful of failure. And what that fear has done is cripple my ability to move if I can't effect success. So in my work, I plan and manifest incessantly because I see the end product, but the operations of it, the scaffolding of it, all of that, that's perhaps where I have to fill the gap on my team, right? So I have the destination in mind. I know what it looks like. I know what it smells like. I know what's for dinner. I know what the colors are. I know what the house needs to have. And I manifest to that like crazy. The scaffolding and the operations of it all is where I need the team to sort of, okay, in order to do this, you have to do this and this and this, those kinds of things. If we think about this as head thinks, heart, now, right? Yeah. Gut. And I don't know if this is what's going on, but what it looks like is you constantly go into your heart and gut and you're translating the thing to come out into yeah. a way that will make sense or you feel will make sense to others and how do I communicate this properly. In this space, I, I know I do it, but <laughs> I'm always trying to move down into heart and gut. Yeah. So it becomes a heart-to-heart -heart space, a gut-to-gut -gut space. However that's communicated is how it's communicated. That energy for me is why I like doing this kind of yeah. engagement. I think when it comes into my head is that I've been trying to notice things like how do we create the 21st century pu'uhonua where people can just be in order to have the space needed and provided to heal and release the burdens that we've been holding potentially for generations and do it in a group format because you can use the energy of the group mm -hmm. to do an individual process, not so much in ceremony, but maybe what would be mm -hmm. ceremony. How would that look? How would that be? Can it be conceptually put into a school? For instance, I was on the call with OWR, the Office of Wellness and Resistance for the state, right? Mm -hmm. And one thing that I heard on that, it was like a web conference. And then they're saying the next wave of issue that needs to be resolved in Maui, you know, you're going to have kids going back to school that are highly traumatized mm -hmm. into a space that is highly traumatized mm -hmm. with adults that are highly traumatized mm -hmm. and not necessarily trained. How do we provide safe enough space to be able to express properly so that we don't hold that for generations mm -hmm. more? It's in this space somewhere. How do we put this together using ancient technology and wisdom in a frame of that makes sense, you know, to whoever now, and then do it in a responsible way that we can actually use the power of community in order to help each other to heal? Are you coming from a position where you already know the how? Oh, I kind of already know the how. Is the where is where you're going kind of the same, like a fear of failure, right? Fear is something that I've been getting to know a lot better over the last number of years, especially in the last number of months, where, I mean, this would have been launched out of my thought 
mm-hmm. a long time ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> normally, sure. under normal circumstances. Right. Although I can say that, especially since I can remember, at least in the last times, I am gun shy. I'm worried if, oh, how will this be accepted? Will anybody even come? You know, what does that mean for me? So judgment in there. So then that leads to some sort of shame. I am bad. Somebody is shaming me. And that comes up. And then my protective parts jump in and say, you're not going. I think what I'm doing, even in this questioning, when I question to you, I kind of already know. But it's been, you know, I have that, the block of actually implementing, which Mm -hmm. is super odd to me. I'm 50, but I swear for 40 something years of my life, I just launch. I don't know if I'll finish ever. Most of the time, never. (laughs) Right? I'm really amazed or fascinated, interested in understanding why I am so fearful. And part of it for me is that my father is, again, I mean, these daddy-parent upbringing issues, right? It, It wasn't a traumatic event that has sparked this, you know, for me. I grew up in a house where my father is one of the the most incredible orators. So you see me searching for words. My father has this beautiful art and knack for finding the right word for any or phrase or because he's an incredible orator and he knows all of Samhain proverbs and all of the the stories and all of the ancestors and he finds ways to bring them together. You may not know where he's going around Israel to get to Kailua, you know, but he'll land. At the end, it's just this incredible thing. And so I'm always hunting for words, building vocabulary, because that is the model, right? And so to your point about launching, again, I see the destination, right? So when Mao Piailug is talking to Nainoa and you see Tahiti, you know, and you bringing Tahiti to the canoe, you know, I see Tahiti, but I haven't done this work. This is where I need the team, right? Somebody else has to come in and say, this is the process and all of that, even though we're strategy people. I'm a strategic, you know, so I can see overall strategy. Somebody has to see operational strategy, you know. For me too, though, is that divine timing is also really key for me, right? And so what I try to measure is, how much of holding me back at this point is fear and how much of it is not is divine time. And so what this is to become remains to be seen, perhaps, right? And I had no idea that I was coming to have, in all honesty, this deep. I should have known as soon as I saw the, the elixirs, but I want to appreciate you not settling, that you push to go somewhere if you see the space open and needs to be like, there are many conversations again, like this is me search work of what I feel like you and I are doing right now, because there's lots of conversations that I'm sure we have both had individually where this really isn't the, you know, we can just stay at the ankle deep. That space is what I like these days. You know I mean? After seeing so many people die, I had nine friends die last year. My father died and passed away in this year. You know, I mean, things like that. It's like you learn a lot of things yeah. watching that. I just want to be in a connected space. 
you know that's why it's interesting the interchange of today is that maybe i'm need into this to project internally onto you to be able to see what's going on and you to do the same and we just kind of yeah doing a little interchange which is why i like a group that's cultivated properly because then we can help each other to yeah to heal yeah more or less you know the space that you opened here today it's hard to trust it's hard to trust that space is safe then it's hard to leave because that doesn't exist really very many places at all and so that's an incredible gift i think you know i have a question for you about okay. the group does the group then participate in an engagement like this it could as a species what are we looking for that one as the acronym that my daughter and I kind of came up with and, and are going with is Shaka Vea, right? Seen, heard, acknowledged, appreciated, validated, empathized, and aloha. Wow. At the root, that's what we all need because that Shaka Vea unlocks connection. Mm -hmm. And the connection is what we all need. Mm-hmm. When there's disconnection, then we have anger, yeah. disappointment, frustration, protest, and so on, right? And the connection at the root that's most important is the one between us and us, right? Then we have us and others, mm -hmm. me and this space, mm -hmm. us and our ancestry, us and nature. You know what I mean? You have all of the different connections. When mm -hmm. something, us and our health, me and my vocation, right? So when those disconnections are weak or it's disconnected, we've got problems, mm -hmm. right? Distress, dysregulation. Mm -hmm. So everything to me is connection, which is what our mutual friend Pono Shim, who has passed one of the nine passed last year, yeah. so I like wear a shirt, yeah. would emphasize. In Samoan, Tongan, Maori, Hawaiian, we have this concept of va. Va in Samoan is the space between two people or someone and the environment, right? And so va can be quite large. It can be really, very small. It is dependent on that relation, right? And the relation is multi-layered. It's personal. It's matai-driven, you know, in the hierarchy-driven. And then you have to te You have to attend the space, because if you don't attend the space, you know, you lose connection within, right? So, like, you have the kumulipo, this genesis of Hawaii, to the birth of Kalani Nui Iamamao, right? This one child. And they spend 16 va, 16 time periods, in which everything on the earth and in the world is born, and connect all of that to this one child, so that this one child is the culmination of all the mana available in the universe to this one ali'i. And in these va, these time periods, you start with the turning of the earth and the slime, and the slime becomes a coral polyp, then coral polyp becomes, you know, and it's just like this incredible assessment of all of the things in the Hawaiian world. Those composers or that composer took just a vast amount of knowledge necessary to compose the kumulipo 
the source of the deep dark blue. The amount of teu that this composer, a group of composers, had to amass in order to attend that space is it's the necessary connection, mind, body, soul, you know, chakras aligned that you have to have as a human being to the people around you and to the earth that nurtures you in order to know. It is fascinating to me. And I think this is part of what you're talking about. For me, we haven't attended the Va. And that has led to the trials and tribulations that we have as a local community with each other, with the government, you know, with the industry, or I should say with industry. And so the reason I ask in your group healing, do you do this kind of work? Because I'm a story person, I find empathy in the stories of people. It would be fascinating to me to listen to the stories of people in my healing with you. The va that you mentioned is super important mm -hmm. because without the connection, no healing gets done. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Mm -hmm. It's like if you want to make a phone call and then you don't want to say no, first thing you got to do is try and get a signal, right? You can talk all you like and dial all you like and send whatever you want. Nothing is mm -hmm. going. Mm -hmm. That to me, as I concept it, is kind of the va. How strong are you? Four bars? get one bar, what do you got? You know what I mean? But it's present. When that is present in the container, like a battery, like multiple batteries use the synergy of that for their own process as well as with the group, now we got something. And that energy is really euphoric, right? It's a release. So the ba in everything, absolutely, I would say everything. And that's probably what I try to cultivate and focus on even in this space. I got feedback recently. I kind of sent it to a friend. I was like, oh, you know, your space is this. It's smaller. And I appreciate that. However, it's cozy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not one giant studio. Somebody's house. Yeah. It's like yeah. cruising with me in my house. We're talking story. We're connecting in a meaningful way yeah. that is not common. But that's the piece, right? the group's energy to help each other in an individual process. And then whatever is done in there allows people to return back to just being with no judgment. Mm -hmm. And then that allows people to share or not share whatever feels right for them. And in the sharing, we understand each other, depending on how that sharing is structured, it could be deeply connecting. Mm -hmm. and then you go, well, that was something, right? Even for me, someone's story, like in a group, somebody shows their story and all of a sudden it's like, I got a burden release for me from their story. And that to me is the healing power of the right group, which I can't constantly have been talking about for kind of a long time, but yeah. I'm in the process of getting there at some point. I imagine these guests probably surprise themselves at how safe they feel by the end of the time and what they've learned about themselves as, as you're learning from and about them. I would agree with that 100%. Yeah. It sounds like pretentious if I say it in the beginning, like at the end where we're done, if this moves the way that you know, I feel like we're moving, this will feel like a spiritual experience. Yeah. People would be like, huh, I don't like go. You know, like, I don't know about that one, bro. You know, so I don't say it. But when we're done, that's typically what is said. Would you acknowledge that you're a healer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hence all my yeah, 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 my paraphernalia. But I mean, I spend most of my time doing that. 
And the way that the healing typically works is rebuilding a connection between somebody and themselves. Yeah. And a lot of it's still me search yeah. on how we're doing this externally. How does that apply to me? And every time that someone else released their burden, uh, mine too. Yeah. So it's not fully like altruistic. I help to heal others in order to heal myself. Mm-hmm. Good trade-off. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. You know, because like, you know, in this work, right? And you are doing it through storytelling, through mm-hmm. music, and mm-hmm. so on. Be a lot of energy, depending on the space, right? Like this is energy sucking kind of work. Yeah. But in a different kind of space, it could be energizing. Yeah. Yeah. So then it becomes, how do you create the space where it's energizing for everyone? I mean, the last time we did this show, it was all about accomplishing. Right? How do we accomplish? How do I get to become a U.S. senator? How do I get to be the CEO of the bank? How do I get to be the co-founder of MySpace or so on? Mm -hmm. And then how do I do that also by utilizing community interaction and so on? And oh, yes, it will be good because everyone will be doing community work, whether it's altruistic reasons or not, whatever. But it was always so tactical. My wife had asked me, she said, or somebody else asked me, she's like, well, who's going to listen? Who's your audience? This and that. And my take on that was my audience is whoever resonates with this content. Yeah. And me and the guest. That's yeah. about it. Like, that's it. Well, the people that are supposed to find it will find it. The easiest way for me to explain this these days is how often do you have a really deep connecting conversation with anybody? Yeah. So here's an opportunity to belong and feel like you belong in a space that's opening and welcome and join us in this. Yeah. Feel like you're a part of it. Yeah. Share in that energy and mana'o. And then where it takes you, where it takes you, whatever. Yeah. See, for me, you ask me a question like that, I have no choice. I have to play. Yeah. You know, I have to sing. I have mm-hmm. to create. Like, it's in my feet, you know? <laughs> like, it's your expression. Yeah, it is. You block that, that's blocking the flow. Yeah. You have a problem. Right. Yeah. Right. I worked with Don Kani'opi'o and Ruben Carrillo on a what was supposed to be interview and song. And so we talked with Lena Alapavao, Kawaii, Clifford Naiole on Maui, Ka- um, Kekuhi, uh, yeah, in Big Island, and then Robert Casimero here. So music and cultural people aligned on different islands. You know, one of the things that I love about being a musician, I'm really so glad that the universe and the ancestors aligned me in this way, is that what music really teaches you, if you're paying attention, is how to listen. And when my voice teacher put that Verity score in front and she said, the work is already done. She said something to the effect of God gave the composer the talent to put the music on the page. Your job is to realize that music in this lifetime, you know? I just remember thinking to myself in that moment, how lucky I was to pay attention to my grandmother. You know, how lucky I was to pay attention to Uncle Mahi. Like, to pay attention. Like, to teuleva. You know, that every nuance then is meaningful, you know? In Samoa, it's interesting in Samoa because in Samoa, you really have to pay attention to the Matai in any given situation. Because if an eyebrow is raised, that means something. If the finger is raised, somebody needs to have noticed that that finger is raised and what it means, right? And so it could just mean, you know, bring me water, I'm thirsty, or 
you know, I'm going to move my finger and you guys have to bring all the fine mats around this side, you know, all of, I mean, it could be just a whole production. But in order to understand, you have to really pay attention to nuance. And maybe that's part of the reason that I'm so interested in terms of the me search, finding the right word, but also in engagements like this, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, where we're going. And it's funny because I started this wanting to know where you want it to go. You know, something kind of interesting to me is I got, you know, not super planning, but a good number of Samoan friends, right? And when you look at like someone from the outside, my friends are big, kind of mokey, you know what I mean? Like, you don't want to mess up. Like, one, I wouldn't even look at them if it was my friend. Like, I would. <laughs> it's sure. scary. Like, like yeah. oh, I'm going to get lickings or what from this giant dude. But, yeah. But I've had very deep, probably not surprising, conversations with them. Sure. That shows a truly sensitive kind of side that nobody <laughs> else sees. Yeah. And we, I know for a fact, like, he does not show that. So, yeah. Like, the side is showing is, I'm going to kick it. I'm kick your ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because when you're talking about the va, you're talking about these are very energy sensitive, mm -hmm. like feeling types of beliefs and concepts. Whereas externally, there's so much like you're not even getting to this because I'm give you a crack first. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But sometimes a crack means I love you, mm -hmm. and then it becomes confusing, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Some ones are actually very, very, we're very difficult, hard, and we're hard on each other, and so you know. My Samoan is not great. I use the wrong verbs, you know, and I use the wrong quality of language all the time. You know, if someone is at one hierarchical level, they're susunga. And, you know, talo falaw susunga. If they're off a higher level, afionga. Afionga, you know. And so my academic mind wants to use the right words at the right time all the time. But if I use afyonga all the time, then I've taken care of everything underneath. Everyone can be afyonga. And there are some verbs where you can do the verb if I'm talking to you, but I cannot use the verb that way talking about myself. So for me, what that says about the language and then the worldview that is founded within the language is that Samoans are, and Hawaiians the same way, but Samoans are so attuned to self in relation. That self in relation can never be relaxed. You must always be aware of self in relation. And so, yeah, you see these big guys, you know, walking around town and you don't want to mess them. But in essence, they're looking at themselves in relation. And so with a mother, with a grandmother, that va is really very different. With a faifi'au, with a matai, that va is very distinctly different. With each other, distinctly different. And so that understanding of culture takes so much work. I, you know, I, I'm not one of those, uh, those big brawny, you know, in a very real way. I grew up in a Hawaiian household. But the power of the attention that needs to be paid to understanding that self in relation is key to understanding our particular place in the universe, right? And then you understand how you can be a vehicle for something rather than the progenitor of everything. I mean, I can imagine you 
having a conversation with them and learning so much. <laughs> I can't imagine maybe what that would be like in a situation like this. <laughs> I don't know if they would do it necessarily publicly, kind of sure. like this. My wife, she works at a DOE, runs our businesses, and mm-hmm. then also is a practitioner for neurofeedback, which is kind of like physical therapy for your brain mm-hmm. and so on. And we would have these discussions on our daily walks in regards to like, well, you know, people opening up and sharing things and so on. I, I said, I don't have to ask most of the time. If I'm willing to just sit, just be there and listen, majority of the time people just say any kind. Yeah. And this is why it's beautiful to watch the music flow through you is that there's so much that wants to be expressed typically in myself and in others in an authentic and meaningful way without judgment of fitting into a certain kind of box that a lot of times people can't do it. Yeah. And you can see it kind of come out and trying to, and it gets pushed down or pushed away or so on. And when that is allowed to just be, then the results can be beautiful and extremely healing. Yeah. The parts of us that really want to express themselves want to express yeah. themselves. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It is so much that you sit and you genuinely want to listen. You genuinely want to learn. But then it's also, it's all of this, right? Like mm-hmm. The energy has to be a particular way. I didn't know what to expect. And I came in here, true, right? I mean, I came in here and the first thing I saw was this. And I thought, gosh, we know each other already. Mm-hmm. See, I'm going to cry. I was supposed to see that before I sat down. Because then there are things that we understand about aura and about energy and about chakra and about coherence that perhaps a va that may have been one size or attended in a particular way, we've attended that va. Without even knowing, we've already attended the va in order to prepare the space. So could it be that the va is already there, tended to and so on, and then was just only noticed at that point? Absolutely. Mm. Because the va is this greater existence, right? We're always tending va. Our tending is our commitment to what that tending is or what it looks like because we can forsake it. We can ignore it. And even the ignoring of the va is attending to it, right? And so I think that's where we find ourselves now. We are stuck in a place that it gets harder and harder to get ourselves out of the quicksand Part of it is there's so much noise around us all the time. And it's more and more and more difficult to stay the noise and transcend the chaos because there's so much of it around all the time. I'm hard-pressed, though, to believe that, especially in a place like ours, where for generations we have lived together, eaten each other's food, housed each other's children. We've taken care of each other's families. I don't think we realize that we have actually fallen away from the power of that. We've taken it for granted for so long. And we've turned externally to blame our trials and tribulations on things that we really have absolute control over. And I think that if we come back to this va and to this va, that we can then turn to a visitor or an entire industry and say, okay, now we're ready. Five million or 10 million, you know? And not to say that we have the infrastructure for 10 million. We certainly don't. 
But because we've handled the internal pressures of our own community with and about and for and from each other, the pressure of all of this burdening this, no, we're, we're good then. We've surrounded ourselves and each other with light. And that surrounding with light, nothing can then penetrate. That's all good. Then we can say, okay, we can't handle 10 million. 5 million can come this year. And we bring the 5 million in and we do the work and we send them home with light. And none of that really works unless we have malamad, you know, that this community is cared for, you know? What's your vision for that then? Yeah. Your future vision for that? I don't think you're far from it at all. I think it is in the group. One of the things the Native Hawaiians are really, really bad at is acknowledging a Pacific Islander community in diaspora. That when I first went out to UH West Oahu, so UH West Oahu is just off the freeway. If I go up to Farrington or I go up to the Farrington Highway or go up to the freeway and I turn left all the west side, that's my region, right? That's UH West Oahu region. So I called a friend of mine who I think she was doing her practicum or something as vice principal and said, you know, is there a way that we can start bringing students to West Oahu? And because of the grant, that Title III grant is geared toward Native Hawaiian, you know, retention and graduation. So I talked to Lauren and she tells me this fascinating story that at a school on the West Side, you have Hawaiians who have been salt of the earth, you know, on homestead land for generations. That's their land. And they're coming to this school. You also have the gentry Hawaiians who are moving into the brand new homes being built. And they can afford to live in these homes that, you know, that cost a pretty penny. It's their land, and they're coming to this school. And then you bring into that mix Micronesians, Marshallese especially, who really don't care to be in Hawaii. Hawaii is not their paradise. But they cannot live on Bikini Atoll because of American history at Bikini Atoll. They have to be here. They've been displaced from their homeland. They have no home base. So you bring these two populations of Hawaiians together with Micronesians who don't care. You have chaos every day. Talking about your process of healing to bring the group together, that's a perfect demographic to bring healing in. These children from Micronesia, who have an incredible history, to whom we owe our rekindling and reestablishing of relationship with Polynesian or what Pacific voyaging, together with the Hawaiians who have been there for eight, ten generations, together with Hawaiians who don't know about the West Side, they're just moving in. Can you imagine the power of story in a group that includes Marshallese talking about the bombing of Bikini. And the fact that we call a Bikini a Bikini is because of this atoll that no one can go to because it's full of radiation forever and ever and ever. Together with Hawaiians who understand Maui, who as Maui traversed the West Side and lifted, you know, dug this cave and moved this boulder and all of that. Together with Hawaiians who are coming from different stories outside of the West Side. I mean, it needs to be toot. It needs to be attended. It needs you to sit there and open the space and then to be attentive to the space because it is tension. It is tenuous, you know, but that's part of the power of the space as well is that's dynamic. And so, you know, you, you have to maintain the safety in the space, but once the space is open and we all respect it, then that's when power, that's when energy, that's when healing, 
that's when nuance and empathy, that's when that takes place. And so that's one group. And I think it's all part of the work that we need to do because that relationship between the Native Hawaiian community and Pacific Islanders and diaspora is one relationship. We have to reconcile who we are with Chinese, who we are with Filipino, who we are with Korean. We all live here on an island group with finite resources, but we don't live like we have finite resources. We live in full abundance, as we should, but have we done the work to assure that we maintain that abundance? I don't think so. So then it's easy to blame business, visitor industry, you know, outsiders. We have to do that work first. I know is the work that we have to take responsibility for. Poroshim keeps popping into this space. So mm-hmm. can you share either one of your favorite stories from him mm-hmm. or your favorite story or memory with him? When Passion of the Christ first came out, I went with a friend to see it. Didn't know what to expect other than that, you know, that it was the Passion of the Christ. And the theater was packed with people. And the woman sitting next to me, she was prepared for the film. She had her tissue box here, said a little prayer before the movie began. Pono, at that time, owned that concierge business at Ward. He had gone to the front, and I don't know if he had seen the film or what, but he said, you know, I have to say that if it were appropriate to offer a prayer, I really would offer a prayer. Some people in the front several roles probably told him, you know, why don't you offer prayer? He offered prayer. For me, this was the power of Pono, (laughs) that he could come into a situation tenuous as the energy is in the room and just offer a sense of calm. Even the way he handled, for me, those last several months, I mean, there is absolute grace and gratitude. For me, it's, you know, sort of model, right? I hope that I remember that model. He shared with me once, you know, the story that he shared with everyone, but I felt like it was particularly special because it was just him and I, you know, him sharing with me the work that he did with his auntie Pilahi. And more than this whole idea of A-L-O-H-A, just that work of learning, you know, from each other, that to me is the power of Pilahi's teaching about Aloha. I also have to say, that I think, you know, in context to this, and I don't think Pono would disagree, but part of it for me is that conjuring thinkers and teachers like Pono, like Pilahi, like Kavena, Pukui, is that we also need to be really careful that what we don't do is put them on a pedestal that's too far for us to aspire or attain. Because if it's always the carrot that's just in front, I can never attain. And I think, I don't think that any of them would be proud of us not attaining the greatness that they were aspiring to. I think the goal of that work, the goal of aloha, is that we attain aloha. And then as we attain aloha, the more and more and more we understand that aloha is this ever-abundant energy that has to be maintained. It has to be attended. You know, and so I had become this part like we must let Pilahi rest. We must let Kavena rest. What they're trying to teach us is we have to do the work. 
it's not just a phrase that has been touted. We have to do the work of aloha, akahai, you know. It's really a directive to work is how she defined these attributes of aloha. So we can espouse the words, but if we're not doing the actual day-to-day maintenance, then we're just espousing. We're just talking. How would you explain your concept then, the way you understand it, of the aloha? And then how do you put in the work in story form? For me, aloha is at first a physical exchange. And by physical, I mean physical. We're sharing space. And then that sharing of space leads to a spiritual recognition, one of the other. And I don't know if that's deep or not deep, but it's really as simple as that for me because, again, I mean, Allah is really understanding the va and then attending to the va. That acknowledgement of self in relation is core to knowing what aloha is. Aloha is abundant and ever, ever present, but it's not this thing that gift that keeps on giving unless you've tended it in that way, right? Aloha can certainly put a period on and not come. And, you know, decide it's going away, it's not coming back. You know, I think that's where this misnomer is that beautiful Aloha spirit. You know, it is a beautiful thing, but it isn't the thing that we have that you don't. Again, I think, you know, I'm I'm hearkening back to a visitor industry. What we haven't done is assure that they're attuned to the way that we expect or aloha expects to be treated in order for aloha to be ever abundant, ever resourced, ever bountiful, right? Ever fervent. And so for me, that physical interaction is key. And I don't mean physical and you and I are going to give a hug or shake hands or honey. What I really mean is the sharing of space. So we don't have to touch, but this is a physical engagement because we have acknowledged a va, right? And now we're working on the tending to that va, that is aloha. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you feel is appropriate or you want to cover? I think we went where we were supposed to go, and thank you for that. I'm really appreciative and grateful to you for this time and this va. Thank you. you. I appreciate that. As we kind of land this plane, Mm -hmm. I just want to acknowledge you for opening up in this space sharing your heart, your na'au, and your mind with me and others. I want to acknowledge for what you're doing for your family and for this community. And I just appreciate you spending the time with me today. No, thank you. Thank you for the time. Thank you. If you resonate with Greater Good Radio, please join our community at www.greatergoodradio.com where you can get access to exclusive content and offerings. Hope to see you soon.